The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 10th, 2023. This week at Lawfare, various articles and podcasts analyzed new developments in the realm of cyberspace, White House cybersecurity strategies, developments in AI regulation, and potential bills to increase data protection and privacy. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from February 2020 in which Jack Goldsmith sat down with Ben Buchanan to discuss his book, The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. In the episode, they discussed the so-called name and shame of Justice Department indictments, the diverse reasons why states conduct cyber attacks, and more. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, bonus edition, February 26, 2020. Ben Buchanan is a professor at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a scholar on cybersecurity and statecraft. He has a new book out this week, The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Jack Goldsmith sat down with Buchanan to talk about his new book about the so-called name and shame strategy of Justice Department indictments and about the various reasons why states engage in offensive cyber operations. It's the Lawfare Podcast bonus edition, Ben Buchanan on The Hacker and the State. So, Ben, there's been talk since I've been in this field 20, 25 years about a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor as the great threat. And I think some people have been poo-pooing that over the last several years, but I, I think your book is in a way designed to show that that's not the threat and what the real threat is. Is that fair? I think that's right. My view in writing this was that if you're looking for planes crashing and cities burning and the apocalypse happening, you're missing the activities that matter most in cyberspace. This kind of daily competition between nations in which they compete using hacking for a geopolitical advantage. Now, does that mean that you don't think that we face a real threat of a cyber 9-11 or cyber Pearl Harbor, or that that's just not where the action and the main threat is now? I do think that there's an increasingly aggressive uh, trend line over the last 20 years of cyber operations. We've seen blackouts and the like in Ukraine. So it's not that there's no physical risk. 
It's just that waiting for this exceptional surprise bolt from the blue means you're taking your eye off the things that happen every single day uh, in this dance between nations in which everyone's hacking each other all the time in this endless struggle for advantage. Okay, why don't you talk about that? Why don't you give us a sense? Because the book does a nice job of laying out the kind of array of things that happen and the flexibility of the hacking tool. Just lay out, just give us a sense of you know, what's going on and how it's evolved over the last few decades. That's right. Every chapter in the book is a different way in which nations project power or shape the geopolitical environment using hacking. So you've got things from tapping fiber optic cables and collecting intelligence to uh, strategic espionage, pulling information out uh, from your adversary. The Chinese have certainly done that for a very long time. You also have things like the North Koreans do, where they're, they're using hacking as a tool to fund the regime, pulling back what seems to be hundreds of millions of dollars in, in hard currency and in cryptocurrency. You, have, of course, have disruptive attacks, what the Iranians have done to the United States and to their regional allies. So my point is that across all these different dimensions, the use of cyber capabilities is not an exceptional thing, but it is one that's just now a, a key part of uh, statecraft and a key tool in the, in the toolbox that, that policymakers go to when they want to get an advantage over their adversaries. Well, let, let's talk about your first chapter. I mean, your first chapter is called Home Field Advantage. Um, describe what that means and whether you still think we have one. The home field advantage is rebutting this notion, which, of course, you've rebutted very well in your own work, that cyberspace is borderless. It has no geography. And home field advantage is actually there is a geography to cyberspace. The placement of data centers, the placement of telecom hubs, the placement of fiber optic cables all matter a lot for the flow of information all around the world. And it gives espionage advantages to some nations. Namely, if you look at maps of fiber optic cables and telecom hubs, the Five Eyes, United States, United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia are well positioned on these links and can use their legal tools to, to get access to this information as it transits their borders. And this is a home field advantage. I think it's been at the core of the United States cyber strategy for quite some time. And it's eroding slowly, uh, but it's still there to this day. What was the impact of Snowden on, on the home field advantage? Well, Snowden certainly revealed a lot of information about this. I think this was at, at best assumed, but often quite secret before Snowden. And Snowden put a lot of information out in the public domain about this home field advantage to the degree that adversaries have taken steps to try to keep their traffic out of the United States. It's a little harder to know, but there's no doubt that, that Snowden probably is the single uh, most revelatory source about this part of, of cyber statecraft. And presumably, I mean, I mean, so just to go back for a second, as I understand it, the home field advantage consists of at least two things. One, uh, access to the major pipes through which communications flow. And two, for the United States, through legal vehicles like 702 and the like, access to uh, communications by global communication firms that happen to be U.S. firms or have a U.S. presence. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yep. I mean, so what are, what are some of the forms that, that these nations reacted to? There's been a digital sovereignty movement. Has there – I mean, what efforts do, – do you know what steps have been taken in light of the Snowden revelations? to ensure that communications don't travel through the United States or at least through um, some sort of infrastructure that the United States would have access to? We've seen nations talk about building their own fiber optic cables. That's a very expensive project, so we haven't seen a ton that actually happened. We've certainly seen more data sovereignty laws of nations trying to keep their citizens' data on their own providers or in their own country. 
But it's worth noting that just because the, the data is in its own country on its own provider doesn't mean that it's secure. It certainly is the case that you know United States intelligence can go and get that data um, via other hacking tools. So home field advantage is one part uh, of the United States arsenal uh, for statecraft in this area, but certainly not the only one. But other nations are trying to adjust, I think, to to reduce the U.S. home field advantage. And how has um, encryption helped nations fight our so-called home field advantage? Encryption is a key part of other nations' strategy to erode this U.S. home field advantage. And the notion here is very simple. If the data is properly encrypted and can't be decrypted, then it doesn't matter which pipe it goes through. It doesn't matter which telecom hub it goes through it will be safe from eavesdroppers. So encryption certainly is one of the tools that people of all kinds, including American adversaries, use to try to protect the, the security of their data as it moves around the global internet. And is there any way of knowing where the balance of power on that lies? This is one of the hardest subjects to study uh, because obviously decryption capabilities are some of the most secret tools in the U.S. government, certainly some of the most secret tools in our adversary governments. That said, we do have information, again, largely from Snowden, but some from other sources, including computer science research, that suggests the United States has pursued a very aggressive effort to try to, to weaken encryption or to otherwise decrypt uh, messages that, that the sender and receiver think are secure. That takes a number of different forms. It takes the form of spying on uh, cell phone companies and telecom providers to figure out what kind of encryption they're going to use and try to find weaknesses in it. It takes a form of trying to introduce vulnerabilities where possible into encryption systems. And it takes a form of using high-end supercomputers and math to try to exploit vulnerabilities that are found. It's a multi-pronged effort, certainly costing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, that I think the NSA in one singles intelligence strategy calls the price of admission to cyberspace, that this is essential for understanding the secrets of adversaries uh, once they're encrypted. You need decryption capabilities to figure out what's going on. Okay, that's really interesting. I want to step back from encryption and then come back to it, but I want to step back. You just said a lot of things about what the NSA is doing. Can you talk in general, and there's a lot of incredibly interesting stuff about what the government is doing in here, much of which I didn't know about or didn't know about in the detail in which you laid it out. Uh, can you tell us how you went about finding all this stuff? Is this all public sourced information? Is, I mean, how did you get all this information? So we should say at the outset, and this is very important to me, there's nothing in this book that Russia and China don't already know. So I, I am definitely not here to burn new secrets. What I am here to do is interpret publicly available information and put the pieces together such that we can understand how this tool of statecraft works. So there's nothing in this book that that burns additional uh, U.S. intelligence programs. So is that another way of saying that all this information is derived or interpreted from public sources? That's right, from from sources that are available on the internet. And what I did in many cases, including in some of the encryption discussion we just had, is I found documents that were on the internet, um, part of the Snowden archive, some of which were covered by journalists, some of which were were posted by journalists but not particularly analyzed in depth. So I, I did more analysis on them myself. And in, in the case of some of the encryption work, I cross-referenced that with some uh, very good work that's been done by computer scientists to analyze what sort of encryption uh, busting mechanisms would be out there, how an intelligence agency might pursue them, and whether what the NSA appears to be doing from the Snowden documents lines up with these theoretical attacks. And by looking at computer science literature and the 
the documents that are available, you can paint a pretty good picture of activities that otherwise I think wouldn't wouldn't come to light um, unless you're a foreign intelligence service whose job is, it is to study the NSA. Okay, go back to let's go back to the encryption stuff. So you tell a story. You just talked about the kind of global consequences for U.S. intelligence and U.S. national security of the encryption debate. Uh, we've had a long time debate now at home, many years about whether or not U.S. law enforcement officials should have access to encrypted communications through back doors or through other means. And I'm just wondering how those two debates intersect. How does the debate at home, which is about largely about law enforcement, we don't talk about it as much in terms of intelligence gathering, of national security intelligence gathering. We talk about it more in the context of the FBI and law enforcement and maybe counterterrorism, but not so much in terms of the implications for counterintelligence operations globally. Do you have a sense of how those two debates interact? Are they intention? Are they are there different arguments or valences? Yeah, the the biggest intersection between the two that I can think of is that in the United States domestic debate, we often pose the idea of encryption backdoors as a hypothetical. And in the foreign intelligence context, what I do in one chapter is I talk about the process of creating a backdoor. And there's very good evidence that the NSA was involved in creating a backdoor in a widely or at least somewhat widely used in, uh, encryption system known as dual EC. So the, the foreign intelligence debate or activity, since there's not a lot of debate about it, is real and concrete. And what I think that could do is that could, could shed light on the hypothetical that we have in the domestic context. And what it does, I think, is it, it underscores a lot of the concerns that cryptographers have about putting these weaknesses into encryption systems. And flesh that out. What, what, what concerns does it give, does it underscore? So cryptographers have said for a long time that the danger of creating a backdoor is that another adversary might rekey that backdoor and use it for their own purposes. And the evidence here is a little bit less firm, but, but still pretty solid, that it appears the NSA had this role in creating a backdoor in dual EC. A company called Juniper picked up dual EC, maybe knowing it had a backdoor, maybe not, and used it in its products. And then a group of foreign hackers came into Juniper software surreptitiously and rekeyed the backdoor for their own use. So what this does is this takes something that's often posed as a hypothetical in the domestic encryption context and shows us that at least in the foreign intelligence encryption context, in at least in this one case, that's what happened. And I think that probably is the, the clearest overlap and intersection between the two debates is what was hypothetical in one context was very real presumably with very strong consequences, though it's hard to know for sure, in a foreign intelligence context. Okay, do you have an informed sense of in this, for lack of a better phrase, arms race between intelligence services trying to hack into computers versus encryption, do you have a sense about where the arms race on quantum computing is and, and how that's going to impact all this? There's an old joke that quantum computing is 20 years away and always will be. I... I don't think that quantum computing is materially changing uh, the landscape right now. There's a Snowden document that suggests that there was significant quantum computing research at one point at, at NSA. There's no evidence NSA has made any more progress than anyone else. It is the case that a quantum computer, if it existed, would give a nation significant advantages in decrypting adversary communications. 
but there's no evidence I can find that that's what exists right now. The the techniques that the NSA and presumably adversary nations use to decrypt communications are much more mundane than a, a super quantum computer that, that just blows through the math of it. But to be clear, that's based on what we know in the public. The Snowden documents are seven years old. Is that fair? That's correct. So I, I claim no uh, no insight into what's happened in the last few years at the NSA and quantum computing. Again, there's nothing public on that. So even if I did know, I wouldn't say it, but, but I have no insight into what's happening there. Okay. Let's talk about the extent to which our, our adversaries are using hacks and all the various guises that you talk about them to achieve advantage over us. Could you just you know, paint the general landscape? Yeah, I think one of the most significant things to appreciate, especially when it comes to, to Chinese hackers, is the the scale in both breadth and depth of the Chinese activity over the last two decades. The biggest challenge in writing the chapter on Chinese espionage was figuring out what to leave out because there's just so much. And I ended up writing it focusing on a couple key operations, uh, not all of which have made it into public view uh, in, in a major way, but, but all of which are significant. For example, one that I, I do talk about um, in some depth is a case known as the Su Bin case. And Su Bin was an aviation expert uh, with ties to China, and he worked with Chinese hackers to uh, conduct an extensive reconnaissance and espionage effort into U.S. aviation, in particular into the program um, that was building the new C-17 aircraft. And the way it would work is uh, the hackers would so thoroughly penetrate their targets, they'd pull out huge lists of file names that they could have access to. And Subin would go through the lists and, and hand mark them and say, hey, these are the files that we need. And these are thousands of files. And then the Chinese hackers would go and pull those files out. And the reason I like this case is it shows that it wasn't just a willy-nilly phishing operation. This was a case in which the Chinese had set out their target. They had had a subject matter expert involved in the operation. And ultimately, they went through and, and pulled out a lot of information. It's also worth noting part of the reason we know so much about that case is that it's one of the few cases where the United States successfully prosecuted uh, the perpetrators. And, and Sue Bin was located in Canada, and the United States and Canadian law enforcement were able to track him down and, and arrest him, and he served or was sentenced to, to 46 months in prison. So that's a high watermark in some sense for the United States, but it does show the, the extent and the power of Chinese espionage and in that instance uh, targeted a military capability. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's all sorts of espionage slash theft, and then there's all sorts of you know, hacking that leads to disruption, right? That's right. So that's, that's certainly the tip of the espionage iceberg. There's so much else. You talk about the OPM hack. You talk about the Equifax hack, the hacks against health insurance providers, uh, hotel chains. Those are all cases that show that in the case of China, they're interested in casting a much, much, much broader net than just focused on military aviation. There's also, as you said in your question, this notion of attacks and cyber operations that do damage. And this is the a bulk of the second part of the book. And I think it, Stuxnet and attacks in that period mark a significant transition where nations go from using cyber capabilities just for espionage to also use them for attack. They keep up the espionage game that has not slowed one bit, but they also start using these capabilities to achieve goals that are more disruptive. Stuxnet is, of course, a canonical example. The United States and Israel use this, this operation to attempt to slow the Iranian nuclear problem. Iran comes back a couple of years later using operations to, to hack U.S. companies and regional allies. 
And at that point, the game is on. Nations, including Russia, get in on the action and realize, hey, these capabilities can be disruptive as well. And so my question is, I've thought for a long time that ultimately we're going to be on the losing end of that stick but for a whole bunch of reasons. One, we have – some of this is conventional wisdom. One, we have so much of our wealth and power in digital networks so we're massively vulnerable Two, we've got lots of enemies. Three, our enemies aren't as self-restrained in many respects as we are. So, I mean, do you paint a picture ultimately of the United States being on, or can you even tell where the balance of power lies generally in these hacking wars? The way I like to summarize it and the way I've heard it best summarized is to say the United States has the nicest rocks, but we still live in a very glassy house, which is to say when it comes to exquisite intricate cyber offense, getting into an air gap facility on the other side of the world to carry out this, you know, just beautiful cyber operation that Stuxnet was, the United States has the capability. But that capability doesn't translate to defending our critical infrastructure. And for exactly the reasons you just outlined, I think we're quite vulnerable in that area, and we should expect adversaries to take advantage of it. And indeed, you open the book with the example of the shadow brokers who I still don't fully understand what happened there, but who basically somehow obtained and disclosed a whole bunch of NSA hacking tools. The shadow brokers are the deepest mystery in the world of cyber operations today. So they, they're the, the narrative that opens the book, and there's a whole chapter that goes into the shadow brokers and, and what we do and don't know about that case. But what is clear is that this is an instance of tremendously powerful NSA capabilities. I think one NSA operator told the Washington Post that some of these tools were like fishing with dynamite. They were so strong. These capabilities just appear online. And even now, something like three or four years after that happened, we still have no insight into who did it or how. We have guesses. Russia is a chief suspect, but the evidence is still very thin. And it's it's truly remarkable. But it does show, at least in one case, the consequences of a massive security breach in the United States at the hands of, of someone who as yet has escaped uh, justice. By the way, when you say we don't know, again, is that is that a judgment based on the public doesn't know? Do you have a sense of whether the government knows or are they still in the dark? The public certainly doesn't know. I have seen no evidence that the government has come to a conclusive answer, but one would imagine if they did, it would be very tightly held. But it's remarkable that even a couple of years after this case happened on something so significant, the government hasn't said if they know, and the public certainly doesn't. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? 
stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Yeah. So we, the United States faces this whole array of hacking operations that can be disruptive in various ways that can involve theft of extraordinarily valuable secrets. And so the question I have is, what are we doing about it? And are we doing enough? For the longest time, as you point out in the book, we don't really know for sure how we're fighting back in secret. But one gets the sense that up through the Obama administration, we weren't fighting back terribly aggressively. There were lots of public statements where officials said, 
You know, we, we wanted to strike back against the Iranians here or the Russians there, but we hesitated because of fear of escalation. And the main strategy, at least as far as public was concerned, was the indictment strategy where we we show off our capabilities of attribution and we issue indictments that name names about people, uh, including state officials who were involved in the hacks. But with very few exceptions, you mentioned one of them. This doesn't result in... Um, in conviction. So I'm just wondering, let, let's set aside for the moment the changes that have happened under the Trump administration with regard to persistent engagement and defend forward. But just taking the indictment strategy by itself, but what is your view of the impact of that? As a scholar, I think the indictments are great because they put a lot of information out in the public domain that I can use in, in shaping these narratives. As someone trying to evaluate what they mean geopolitically, I have not seen them move the needle a ton which is to say the first indictment of the, the PLA officers was in May of 2014. We're now six years on from that. We've just issued another indictment of Chinese hackers for the Equifax breach. I can't point to a lot of evidence that these indictments have significantly deterred adversary behavior. It may be there and it may be the result of some intelligence assessment that's classified, but from the outside looking in, I'm not sure that naming and shaming has, has deterred our adversaries from, from continued espionage. But let me make a stronger claim. You tell me why it's wrong if you disagree with it. Isn't there evidence that it hasn't deterred? I mean, deterrence is all is practically impossible to show because you can't run the counterfactual. But is you know we we've been doing naming and shaming for many years now, and we've got lots of evidence that the theft has continued, including after the so-called 2015 agreement. And moreover, I don't even understand the logic of it because. It seems to me at least to third parties to send a signal of extraordinary weakness. You see a front page headline that says devastating hack. Two years later, you see exactly one thing being done about it, a, a useless indictment. Now, there may be other things going on vis-a-vis -vis the party that engaged in the hack, but I don't see why that doesn't send an extraordinary weakness, signal of weakness to third parties in terms of deterrence. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Chinese have continued their hacking operations, and some of the most significant Chinese hacks have occurred after the strategy of indictment. So I think it's fair to say that uh, you know it has not deterred, as you said, Chinese activity. There are U.S. counterintelligence efforts that probably block some of that activity, or at least get better insight and enable U.S. defenses that that are not public. I talk a little bit about some of that, but that's certainly separate from the indictment strategy. So yeah, no, the indictments are. In general, I think not not the strongest card to play. And, and the argument that we hear a lot is, well, it's showing off our attribution capabilities. Um, and I'm just wondering why that's important. It might be important to get the adversary to stop using, you know, that channel of of attack or exploitation. Um, but I just don't understand fully the value of showing off our attribution capabilities. Do you understand that? The logic is exactly what you just described, that at best this this does some – forces the adversary to, to change tactics and, and raises the cost of their operations. And to some degree, I buy that. I do think that for a long time there was a broader logic in showing off attribution capabilities which was not borne out. And that logic was, well, we, the United States and the Five Eyes, really don't like being attributed. The United States and the Five Eyes take tremendous operational security precautions in many of their operations to make sure that they don't get caught. And if they do get caught, it's hard to figure out who did it. I think we assume that other nations worry in the same way about that. 
And I think there's a lot better evidence now than there was, say, five years ago, that China and Russia really don't worry about being attributed. And they will carry out their operation. And if the United States says an indictment or in a press release that this was China or this was Russia, I'm not sure that that deters their behavior as much as maybe we assumed it may have five or 10 years ago. But we continue to do it. And we continue to claim that it has some affirmative benefit. I don't see a lot of evidence. Again, the, our vantage point's a little bit uh, limited on this, but I don't see a lot of evidence that the indictment strategy has has significantly changed our adversaries' behavior, at least at a strategic level. Okay, so how about the relatively new uh, Nakasone-led persistent engagement uh, defend forward strategy? Would you explain what that is, how it changes our prior offensive posture, and give us an assessment of it? Obviously, some of the details of the strategy aren't entirely clear, but it seems like this strategy is taking some operations that occurred before on the intelligence side and turning them into disruption operations. So I tell the story of a classified U.S. operation in, I think, 2011, 2012 against the PLA in which they, they sort of hacked the hackers, went upstream, really penetrated this part of the PLA's hacking network and used that to inform American defenses. It seems like persistent engagement takes that conceptual kind of operation and adds a disruptive element to it and says, not only are we going to spy on the hackers before they spy on us, but we're going to disrupt the hackers. We're going to find mechanisms that we can use to raise their costs of operations, to interfere with their connectivity, to do other things that make it harder for them to, to cause harm to the United States. And the strategic motivation for this, I think, is actually quite in line with the book that I wrote, I wrote started writing this book before they they started talking about it, but it's it's we've come to I think a similar place, which is that the cyber operations as nations currently practice them is again this daily competition, and if it's a daily competition, what you got to do is go out and compete, and you got to engage on a daily or persistent uh, basis with your adversaries and reduce their capacity to act against you. And it seems like at a strategic level, that's where the persistent engagement strategy comes from. How that's being borne out in practice, I don't think we have uh, the greatest degree of fidelity on beyond a few stories in the Washington Post. Stories in the Washington Post that the government has fed it probably. It seems like that's given, – given how uh, laudatory the stories were, um, it seems like these, these were cases in which the United States was trying to show the persistent engagement strategy was working, for example, in the 2018 midterms. Right. So one thing it does seem to me that persistent engagement represents is that the Trump administration compared to the Obama administration, or maybe better to say the NSA now as opposed to the NSA three years ago, is less worried about, you know, less worried about escalation. That's right. Could you explain what the concern it was and is about escalation and whether you think They've gotten over it, and I'm curious whether you think that we were too risk-averse on escalation. I, I do think it, it's fair to say that during the Obama administration, offensive cyber capabilities were quite tightly held. And we know that some of the documents that authorized this activity essentially said beyond some threshold of offensive cyber, this has to be authorized by the president or by the national command authority, meaning the secretary of defense. And that is a, a very, very, very high bar. Now, the Trump administration uh, seems to fear escalation a lot less and has made a, a big show of saying, we're pushing more power down to the commanders, we're pushing more power down to the NSA to use these capabilities as they see fit. 
I think what the Trump administration has not yet convinced me of is that they've made huge, meaningful changes in policy. I think they've probably made some, but I, I think some people can get out over their skis in, in trying to read the tea leaves of, of the Trump administration strategy here in a way that I, I don't know is supported by evidence. We don't have a ton of evidence. That said, as a generalization, I think it's eminently fair to say in this domain, as probably in so many others, the Trump administration and the, the current version of the NSA fears escalation much less than, say, the Obama administration or the NSA did in 2014. And is that a prudent judgment? Can you tell? The evidence here, again, is thin. But on, on balance, I think that this is this is a capability. Hacking is a capability that nations do well to use. And if we treat these capabilities like they're nuclear weapons that only get used when the president authorizes it, we're probably you know not playing cards that we should play. So on balance, I, I certainly support a posture that was more aggressive than, say, the U.S. posture in 2012. So let's move on to disruption, what I think of as disruption. You talk about the election interference in 2016. Can you – what is the state of play in your mind on interference in elections going forward? I don't see any reason why Russia would sit this one out. It seems to me that what they did in 2016 worked or was perceived to have worked beyond their wildest imagination and they did not suffer any meaningful consequences for what they did. And it seems like they would play every card they had in 2020, not just to reelect President Trump, but also to try to divide Americans and cause as much chaos as they can in this country, the latter of which is at least as important as the former. Uh, a key part of the Russian operations in 2016 were about driving this wedge between different parts of the American body politic. If I were Russia, I would do the same thing in 2020 and make the United States stop it. So I'm very concerned. And isn't it even – I mean it seems like to me that it's really easy to do now because they don't even have to do anything successful in terms of actually um, altering voting machines or damaging or degrading uh, vote tallies and the like. It seems all they need to do is to get caught being in there and then the the, the conspiracy series are such, the suspicion of our institution are such – that that has almost as big an impact. Is that right? And what, if anything, can we do about it? That's certainly right. There's a saying in the elections business that elections have two purposes. The first is to pick the winner. The second is to convince the loser and the loser's supporters that they've lost, which is to say the perception of meddling, sometimes even more effective than meddling itself. And we can expect that Russia will, will try to take advantage of this. What to do about it is hard. You have any thoughts? I mean, I, you know, there seems to be so much discussion about protecting the machines and the like. Iowa was not a confidence building in that regard. Um, but I don't really understand how we've made progress with the things we've done or the things that the internet pl platforms have done. I don't really see how we've made progress on dealing with efforts by foreign adversaries, not just the Russians, to sow confusion, to sow lack of trust and the like. And I don't see how we do, really. I'm not optimistic. I can point to technical things that we can and should do to improve the baseline levels of election administration, things like a voter-verified paper trail, things like a risk-limiting audit after the fact that, that adjusts to the, the spread of the election that, that provides mathematical confidence that if there was tampering, it didn't, it didn't change the outcome. There are, there are technocratic things that we can and should do. And again, we are not doing many things that we can and should do to improve election security. But this broader point about social division, the perception of the American electorate of, in, of interference, of who won and who lost, uh, 
at this point, I think we're we're pretty close to a long for the ride. I, I don't know what options are available, and I certainly don't think there's many options that Trump White House are going to pursue on this front to try to to bring the country together to say, look, we're going to pick a president here, but it's Americans picking this president, and we're going to abide by the results of the election. I've got big concerns on on uh, the perception front. Okay, on that depressing note, let's move on to what you couldn't solve in writing the book. I mean, what did you set out to figure out in terms of geopolitical hacking that you just couldn't figure out beyond anything we may have discussed? The thing that was most interesting to me was the broader concept that the shadow brokers embodied. And it's this notion of exposure, of that revealing information can itself be a harm. And what the shadow brokers did to the United States intelligence community was incredibly damaging and it enabled follow-on attacks. And I was really interested in how that was becoming a tool of statecraft as well, how sort of selective leaking, not just of unflattering information, but of intelligence capabilities mattered for, for geopolitics. And there's a number of cases like shadow brokers that have gotten less attention. There's a mysterious group known as Intrusion Truth that is just routinely burning Chinese capabilities, Chinese hacking tools. We see Iranian hacking tools show up online. And I think one of the one of the things that, that's most interesting to me is is how the revelation of hacking tools is a way of, of taking arrows out of the adversary's quiver and who does it and how they do it, and both with the Shadowbrokers and beyond. It's one of the most fascinating questions at the frontier of cyber operations today. I was able to make some headway into it. Again, there's a, a chapter on this, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, if I were writing this book two or three years from now, I would imagine there'll be a lot more data we could we could use. That reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. So you just talked about Chinese and Iranian intelligence tools being burned. And um, there's been a lot of that about U.S. intelligence tools, both with Snowden and, Power, uh, and Shadow Brokers and the like. But um, it does seem to me that there's an asymmetry between what the reader of the New York Times or what the reader of the global newspapers would learn about from the newspapers about U.S. hacking losses versus foreign hacking losses. Um, we seem to be constantly disclosing hacks in the United States, both of firms and of government uh, entities. And we don't hear as much about Russian, Chinese, Iranian losses, which I'm sure are happening, happening at our behest, if, if not from others. And I'm just wondering, is there that asymmetry? And is it significance for any of these debates about deterrence and the like? I think the United States is is giving as good as it's getting in many parts of cyber operations. So a lot of what I want to do was show how this is a tool of statecraft, not just for China and for Russia, but for the United States and our allies. That said, I think if you read American press or you you know read the newspaper for reasons that that you can guess that this is a case of of you see most of the U.S. losses and you don't see the U.S. gains. And the reason for that is a lot of times U.S. companies have regulatory requirements to disclose breaches. The U.S. government will sometimes disclose breaches for the same reason. It's part of oversight. The U.S. will indict foreign hackers that puts information out there. And U.S. cybersecurity firms, the CrowdStrikes, the Mandiants, the FireEyes of the world, will publish reports on what Chinese and Russian and Iranian hackers are doing. So there's a lot of sources out there that, that show what foreign hackers are doing to the U.S. I cover a lot of that uh, when I write about it. I also wanted to show how this is a global 
uh, engagement, how this is a tool that the United States uses to to gain advantage of the international system. And this is a key part of the United States singles intelligence strategy um, for very good reason. But does it help us or hurt us on balance? Or can you tell that we seem to be disclosing asymmetrically more or having having our losses disclosed more than our adversaries? I think having our losses disclosed more probably fuels a perception that the United States never wins in cyberspace. And that's just not right. Um, the United States and its allies in the Five Eyes have extraordinarily talented people uh, using extraordinary resources and investments and have been doing this for decades. And we should expect, and I, I tell stories in the book of uh, those people getting wins for their states. And I think that's significant. So to the degree that the perception out there is that the U.S. never wins or the Chinese and Russians eat our lunch every single day, that's just not right. This is a very active engagement between nations, and and the United States has cards to play and, and indeed plays those cards pretty well. But I'm just wondering, it's like a question I asked earlier, you know, you have you have confidence in that, but um, third parties looking at this, they might or might not know that. And I'm wondering whether the asymmetry hurts our deterrence posture. My my guess is that it it might on the top end, it, it might on the top end they might say well the U S is a is a paper tiger here. That said, I I I don't think I would would conclusively come down on that side because you know, the Snowden revelations, which showed a lot of U S intelligence capabilities were widely covered in other parts of the world. And I think in, in some sense, the Snowden revelations, at least in 2013, may have overstated, or the perception that followed them was one to overstate United States intelligence capabilities. So there are things that, that maybe don't get as much attention in the here and now, but I, I don't think that the Chinese and Russians look at look at the NSA and say, well, those guys, you know, they can't play. They, they know and fear what the NSA can do, maybe even more than the NSA can, in fact, live up to those fears in, in some instances. So I'm not sure it's generally true that that adversaries think we have no capacity to, to fight back. It probably is true, as Paul Nakasone, the director of NSA, said at his uh, confirmation hearings, that they don't fear that we're always going to use those capabilities, particularly on the disruptive disruptive side. And and that may be where we don't have a, uh, a deterrent that we'd like, but I don't think that comes from coverage in the newspaper. Okay, last question. If you're writing this book five or 10 years from now and you had to predict what it would look like, what are some of the trends on the horizon? You've talked about one. Are there other trends on the horizon concerning geopolitical hacking? The trend over the last 20 years has been towards increasing aggression. So from espionage, maybe the first decade or so of the 2000s, to attacks, Stuxnet, the, the blackouts in Ukraine, um, the Iranian activity, the North Korean attack on Sony. And then to this world of destabilization, uh, election interference, the shadow brokers. In every case, we still keep doing the espionage. We still keep doing the attacks. We just add more and we get more aggressive. And I expect that trend will continue, that nations will continue to be undeterred. They will continue to use these capabilities in ever more aggressive ways until someone tries to come in and put a stop to it and say, here is the red line that you can't cross. And I would imagine that if you write this book in, in five or 10 years, you'll look back and say that trend of aggressiveness only continued and the consequences for stability probably are not good. So one more question. Can you imagine what a red line would look like? There's a lot of discussion about what that what that would be. And I think most of the ones that are posed are not realistic. Russia is not going to agree to not interfere in elections absent some really clear enforcement of the United States. 
I would hope that we could establish some red lines around critical infrastructure where the United States says, look, there are there are very clear boundaries to what you can do in critical infrastructure and we're going to enforce them. Maybe there's an implicit norm around that, but I don't think that's that's terribly true. What concerns me about the trend line here is that if you look at uh, not Petya, May of 20, or June of 2017, one of the most destructive cyber attacks in history, if not the most destructive, at least $10 billion of damage carried out by Russian military hackers, basically no consequences. The White House put out a statement a few months later saying this was Russia. It's unacceptable. No teeth to the statement. And at that point, I think if that's how we're going to treat cyber attacks that do tens of billions of dollars worth of damage, we should expect that you know we need a pretty clear change in strategy and some pretty clear enforcement before our red lines become credible. All right. That's great, Ben. Thank you very much. It's a great book. Thanks so much, Jack. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Ben Buchanan for coming on the show. The book is The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and share us widely. Your podcast is produced by Jen Pachihao, and I was your audio engineer this week. Your music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.